0: I think early winners are coming. So I'll give examples of a few of our portfolio and a few of non some of our portfolio. So uh, first, for example, Tricog, when they required the growth funding, the growth funding for Tricog actually came from Omron and Sony, two Japanese corporations. Uh, Omron, because they, they see Omron is one of the largest healthcare companies. So it actually did not come from a large VC investor in US or Japan. It actually came from a corporate investor. So Omron wanted to collaborate with Tricog in India and other markets to build the business together. Sony from a similar perspective. Perspective as well. That's one example. The second example is Bugworks. Where did Bugworks growth funding come from? Actually, but we let the C pre-C A, A, and early series B rounds of bugworks. So until then it was difficult.
1: Hi, wherever you're listening to us, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to Startup Fridays Weekly Conversations with Accomplished Entrepreneurs and VC investors. I'm Hari Arakli, and for this episode, I got a chance to chat with Kiran Mysore on the ninth anniversary of his move to Japan, where he found his calling as a deep tech VC investor, leading investments into India and Southeast Asian ventures at University of Tokyo Edge Capital, one of Asia's biggest deep tech VC funds. We spoke mostly about his experience with the deep tech ecosystem in India thus far, and plans ahead. But Kiran also opened up a bit about his love of learning and how he stays on track. Uh, Kiran, good afternoon to you. Where you are in Japan, and uh, thank you so much for making time for this. Looking forward to this conversation um, because I think uh, when people think in terms of deep tech uh, and Indo-Japan collaboration, may not necessarily come to people's mind uh, first. They might be thinking in terms of cross-border in Indo-US sense or maybe even Europe. Um, but of course, uh, in a in a way, a little bit under the radar, I think. Uh, there is already a lot of work happening, including uh, work that you have facilitated uh, personally. So, really looking forward to this con- uh, this conversation. Uh, welcome.
0: Yeah, thank you for inviting me to the podcast, Harry. I've listened to a few of your uh, other podcasts uh, done on folks as well. Very insightful. I'm very happy to be here. I'm joining from Tokyo.
1: All right. Uh, just to get us started, uh, maybe just give us a simple background about uh, your journey from Bhadravati and then BMS College and all the way to Tokyo and cross-border investments from Japan to India and so on.
0: Yeah, th- th- thank you so much. It seems like a, it's like a full circle in many ways. Actually, today is the ninth year anniversary of me coming to Japan. So we are talking on an auspicious occasion. So yeah, uh, very quickly, uh, uh, perhaps. So let me talk about our firm first. Uh, so the name of our firm is utech which is a University of Tokyo Edge Capital Partners. Uh, we are a Japan-based venture capital firm investing both in Japan as well as abroad. So we manage about $850 million of assets under management approximately. We are usually considered as uh, one of A. Asia's largest uh, deep tech firms uh, and Currently, we are investing from our fifth fund of about $275 million, which we raised in 2021. Uh, so the firm has existed for about 19 years. Next year, we'll be celebrating our 20th year anniversary. Uh, overall, we are fairly hands-on investors. I'm happy to talk more. We've done about 140 investments in the last 19 years, 20 IPOs, and 20 M&As. So for the first few years, until 2017 or so, Utech used to do about 80% Japan, 20% US. That used to be the mandate. But I joined Utec in 2018, and since then, We've been doing 60% Japan, 40% global. Global for us also includes a strong focus on India and Southeast Asia and a bit of US and UK as well. So that's sort of the structure of the firm. Uh, As for my own background, so currently I lead uh, global investments at UTech. This is my sixth year in uh, UTech, and I have a portfolio of about 12 companies uh, spanning across uh, about 75% in emerging markets, deep tech, uh, 25% uh, uh, in the US. Before UTech, I used to lead open innovation in Deloitte, Japan. uh, And before that, I used to be a machine learning researcher in University of Tokyo, publishing papers in deep learning. Uh, And I've also tried to start two companies in the space. Both of them ended up going up in the smoke, but it was a really good experience. Uh, And as you mentioned, I do come from a small town uh, in Badravati. uh, And uh, yeah, so I'm happy to talk more about it as we go.
1: Okay. I'm going to come back to your personal journey a little bit down the line. Um, Tell us a bit more about UTEC in the sense that uh, uh, are there any interesting and important ways in which it differs from a conventional VC firm?
0: Uh, thank you for that question. Actually, the name itself is very interesting. When we say University of Tokyo Edge Capital, people assume that, oh, okay, you're a university endowment fund, probably you're a university related fund investing in University of Tokyo companies. That's not necessarily completely true probably we are one of the only few VC firms in the world which uses a university's name, yet completely independent, which means the LPs or the limited partners who give us money are all banks, security companies, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds from Japan and abroad as well. Uh, so that way, we are a privately funded venture capital firm, like any VC firm, primarily to generate financial returns. However, our investment hypothesis is to invest in deep science and technology companies that either originate from global universities, Japan as well as global universities, all have some some tangible touch points with those universities starting of course with university of tokyo so when the firm began in 2004 uh, the first fund did predominantly university of tokyo spin offs fund 2 in 2009 did university of tokyo and other japanese university spin off fund 3 in 2014 did uh, uh, 80% japan 20% us like us university spin offs such as stanford etc 2018 onwards we have started doing 60% japan 40% global so we have expanded across to investing in university spin offs or related companies in india Southeast Asia elsewhere as well so to this day we only have about 10% of our investments tend to be university or spin-offs rest are not but that's the broad evolution of the firm so that's one of the sort of uh, fundamental thesis of the firm as such
1: Can you give us a quick update um, over the last say 12 months what have been some important uh, milestones achievements developments uh, at UTEC
0: Yeah thank you so much and uh, also let me also combine with the previous question you asked uh, where what are some of our unique things so we are purely deep science and technology only for that matter, but also we construct the portfolio in a way that we can, you know, be financially successful as such. That's how we've been able to deliver 20 IPOs and 20 m over the last uh, few years. So about a third of our investments are healthcare and life science. Uh, one third is manufacturing and physical sciences. So these two companies tend to be directly university spinoffs, but we also have one third investments in the AI and software space, which what people call sort of like tech in general. So by default, about 99% of our companies tend to be B2B companies uh, across the board, Uh, whereas there's a good mix of, the we've spent a lot of time in the portfolio construction, a good mix of pure scientific breakthrough inventions where we fund them uh, and the applied research side to commercialize them into companies. uh, And about a good chunk of them are also on the applied engineering time, which are more market driven. Uh, One thing we tend to do is about a third of our companies are incubations or directly spinoffs from universities where we take the IP out of the university and invest in the companies. So that sort of uh, company creation, the the motto of UTech or the mission of UTech is co-founders of innovation. So we partner with researchers very early and help them spin off companies as well. Predominantly Japan, but that's what we've been trying to do across the world as well. And very quickly, we are also fairly hands-on in the sense we support the companies in many ways, from IP to IPO is our motto. I'm happy to talk more about it as we go.
1: In terms of recent developments, uh... How long ago? Was it a couple of years that you announced a $275 million fund? I think one of the largest Asian deep tech funds at that time probably took your overall assets to a billion uh, dollars under management.
0: Close to billion, but the yen has been depreciating, so I I never know which sort of thing like maybe then you ask, but I think our next one will hit close to us. so there are only probably only a handful of global funds which have reached that sort of thing maybe two thousand and twenty five in the deep tech space. Uh, so yeah, that fund was our fifth fund which we launched in two thousand and twenty one May about two two and a half years back. Uh, that fund was closed back in uh, two thousand and twenty one itself, and we've been deploying from that fund. We've invested in about usually for each fund we invest in thirty to thirty five companies. We usually enter very early, seed and early stage. C3 Series A is where we enter with a check size of 1 to 4 million dollars and then we continue to invest in the company over the, over the life cycle of the company we invest about 10 to 15 million dollars. So from our new fund uh, 2021 vintage we have invested in about 30-35 companies, uh, 60% Japan, 40% global uh, and broadly uh, you know sort of like delivering the same thing. Some of the other recent developments in some of our fund 4 companies which we invested uh, from 2018 to 21, 5-6 uh, of them have been able to go go public, including, uh, and we have, uh, some have achieved successful M&As as well, including one of our Indian companies called Agara, which was acquired by Coinbase. So we have achieved some success case as well uh, uh, as we go, but the broad thesis of the firm remains the same uh, across the board.
1: Mm. Uh, can you step back and give us a bit of the broader context in the sense that how does Japan rank as a trading partner with India? And we know, of course, in India, there are very large, well-known Japanese companies from Toyota, for example, you know, uh, to several other lesser-known companies, but uh, doing exemplary work, whether it's Mitsubishi or others. And, and also, I guess, uh, might be worth pointing out in the context of deep tech that India and Japan have a good uh, space economy partnership, and there are projects coming up and so on. So maybe just give us a sort of overall context.
0: Got it. Thank you. Yeah. And probably also a good time to talk about like why India from our perspective as well. So I'll touch upon that. But in general, I think India and Japan, especially in, have always been natural partners, like uh, probably one of the oldest democracies uh, in terms of the age, actually, like uh, not in terms of uh, the age of the country itself. Uh, India is young. 29 is the average age of population. Japan is old. India is extremely good in software. Japan is good in hardware. Uh, India is very good. Uh, Japan, for example, on the infrastructure, anything touching the physical world is really good. India, anything touching the digital world is really good. One has the largest consumer data. The other one has the largest manufacturing data. So in multiple ways, uh, I think India and Japan are extremely complementary to each other in many ways. So that's the reason we've been seeing the, you know, burgeoning progress of the countries in multiple beyond. The interesting part is... Is uh, Japan is still a fairly manufacturing economy. It's close to four four point five trillion dollar economy. So uh, compared to some of the other spaces, uh, Japan's interest in partnering with India, Japan likely sees India not just as a large market, but also as an R and D and innovation hub, which is great. So that's probably India is probably one of the only few emerging markets where that. Could provide that, and Japan sees India as a strong sort of thing. That's why you've been seeing the trade in the manufacturing uh, and other side of things uh, rise, infrastructure side of things rise as well as not just IT exports and so on. So that's sort of the background there. So India plays a very key role, uh, and India and Indian diaspora in general. So you could say we've funded about uh, five to six Indian companies in the last few years, but uh, Indian founders starting companies across the board are good. 15, 10, 15% of our global companies have one of the Indian co-founders as well, or Indian origin co-founders. So both in terms of the market, talent, people, uh, uh, and science and technology as well, uh, India offers a very interesting uh, sort of perspective uh, for Japan as such. Uh, And of course, the other point is the number of Japanese companies entering India has increased a lot. So we support both sort of things. So many of the global companies invest in India, Southeast Asia, or US, a good chunk of them enter Japan as their second largest market after US. So we support that market ex- expansion or market entry into japan as well what increasingly we've been seeing is more and more japanese corporations are interested to collaborate with india and southeast asian startup to start businesses in their own in those local markets as well so both inside out and outside in there are interesting examples i'm happy to talk uh, more about it as such
1: it, it kind of, i certainly remembered i think uh, very recently uh, rakuten expanded their presence in india and um, I want you to uh, talk a bit more about specific sectors uh, that you have built up a lot of experience in, as well as the ones that have caught your interest now. But briefly, uh, before that, uh, and we were talking about this before we started recording, overall, as a fund, uh, can you give us a simple breakdown in terms of which are the big markets that you invest in?
0: So uh, in general, as I mentioned, in terms of sector, it's one third healthcare life science, one third is manufacturing physical sciences, and one third is what you call uh, AI slash uh, information technology. So that's the sort of like broad bracket. Although I should say the Lines between those sectors is blurring. Actually, we have an Indian company, which is a healthcare company, which uses machine learning and also has a hardware component. So the lines are blurring there. In terms of the market, 60% or the geography, 60% of our investments tend to be Japan, broadly speaking, 40% tend to be global. Uh, But we have a strong emerging market focus on the global as well. We do a bit in the US and UK, but we have also increasingly started to do a lot from uh, India, Southeast Asia and Africa. And the reason for it is very simple. When when we, as a global investor, look at the sort of the landscape, uh, India is perhaps the only market which provides four to five sort of things, which is quite unique. Uh, It is one of the few emerging markets that can can potentially, that has technology that can potentially rival Silicon Valley. You have Silicon Valley level of innovation. That's one. Second, the cost structure is fairly still affordable, a potential developing country cost structure. Third, it has elements of China in terms of a large market presence. So there are parallels to China even in the B2B in terms of large market. Fourth, it's also global, perhaps not from day zero like an Israel or Singapore, but from day one. So the combination of Silicon Valley level innovation at a developing country cost structure with parallels to China in terms of market and the global mindset like an Israel or Singapore uh, is very unique and that makes it very in- in- interesting. So one of the things that our motto of UTech is uh, we pioneer capital talent and knowledge uh, to bring it around uh, to uh, solve issues of humankind or issues of global issues of humankind so investing in India especially offers us an opportunity to create an impact to uh, you know uh, improve the lives of 5 billion peoples across the bottom 5 billion so that is very interesting from our perspective as well.
1: So the 40% that you invest in emerging markets within that um, are you comfortable giving us a breakdown in terms of So far, historically, what's been the proportion that's gone into India and how you see that changing?
0: Yeah, uh, so 40% is our global investment in general. What I can say is in since 2018, since we started investing in India and Southeast Asia as a whole, because the, that's the geography, we look at it together. We have about 10 investments in the region, but we've invested already about 70 to $75 million or more in that region. So that's a significant uh, chunk of it. So one probably differentiator from us and the other uh, some of the other funds is we take a more concentrated, focused approach in building the portfolio. So we don't do shotgun investments of several like uh, uh, accelerator type of investments, we come in as lead investors, support the company. So though the number of portfolio in the last six years, it may seem okay, you've just done 10 investments, but actually the total capital that has gone into India slash Southeast Asia is close to 70 to to 80 million dollars, depending on the exchange rate. And we'll continue to do so as we raise our new funds. Uh, India and Southeast Asia continue to be our very important markets, uh, especially India as such.
1: And now can you talk a bit more about, uh, I mean, you mentioned three, four different sectors that you've been investing in. And uh, can you do a bit of a deep dive into that in the Indian context and maybe even through some of the examples of companies that you have already invested in India?
0: Yeah, that's, I think, a a great segue to uh, what we were discussing about even before as well. So uh, one of... the interesting thing about deep tech companies is they go after evergreen problems, whether it's related to life sciences, whether it is related to uh, you know labor productivity, decarbonization, and so on and so forth. So these are evergreen problems, which I say not tend to be affected too much by a few percentage points in interest rates. So that's really good. Uh, so what, the first company that we funded in India is called Tricog. Uh, so they are a healthcare AI company doing remote cardiac diagnosis. As you know, cardiac diagnosis is a huge problem, and the doctor-to-patient ratio in across the emerging world is very tough. So, when we looked at Tricog, uh, Tricog, uh, or before that, maybe perhaps I can say a two-by-two, when we look at emerging market innovation including India, we say, uh, on X-axis, let's imagine technology. On Y-axis, let's imagine market. So, X-axis is, is it a science-based innovation or is it more of an applied engineering innovation? On the Y-axis, is it built from India for global markets or built from India for India and other emerging markets? So, Tricog fits into the applied engineering innovation uh, focused on emerging markets. So, So in the last six years, we funded the company when we invested, Tricog had their solutions uh, to do AI driven remote cardiac diagnosis using ECG and other modalities. When we invested in 2018, they had about 200,000 patients in a few hospitals. Now they have uh, close to 12 million patients uh, in 5,000 hospitals, 70% India, 30% Southeast Asia and Africa. So that's one of the companies we funded. So broadly speaking, the intersection of AI and healthcare is an interesting trend. The other company we funded, who you have actually already interviewed on the podcast, is uh, uh, Bugworks. Uh, uh, It's a life sciences company. Uh, this is a science breakthrough. So there was a fundamental science breakthrough which said and it's India for purely global markets. So BugWorks currently is the only company in the world to have a new class of antibiotics in phase one, according to World Health Organization. And they just partnered with World Health Organization as well. And BugWorks is a very interesting model of innovation because you can see most life sciences companies that come from developed markets, they partner with pharma companies, take the drug, uh, US, Japan, Europe get access to them first, but the developing markets are left behind. What BugWorks is doing is BugWorks is partnering with those uh, pharmaceutical companies to commercialize the drugs in developed markets, but they have also partnered with World Health Organization recently to commercialize their drugs in the 150 plus developing markets. So this sort of model perhaps can only emerge from India. So these are the two sort of companies that have already scaled up. Beyond that, I think the rise of AI is very significant, and India has an important role to play. So, we invested in a voice based deep learning company called Agara. Even before they could scale up, they were acquired by Coinbase. Uh, and the last one is a company called ePlane, which is a spin off of uh, IT Madras. Uh, and uh, ePlane does world's most compact EV tall aircrafts. Uh, so, this is utilizing the fairly open drone regulations in india in order to commercialize their product beyond that we have a few other companies in singapore and us as well which have india presence i'm happy to talk about them so these are sort of the companies that we look at
1: the connection between a crypto company and a voice tech company isn't immediately obvious to me what was the interest there
0: that's a very good question so uh this is where we say that like uh technology works in mysterious ways, right? It's very difficult to imagine what might happen in the future in terms of that. All you can do is sort of build towards the right directions. So the biggest problem that Agara was solving was customer support automation. So customer, while the technology itself uh, was uh, was not vertical focused, uh, because customer support automation can apply across broad range of sectors. And the problem that Coinbase had, for example, was that look, we have a global client base, all of them require a lot of customer support and it's very difficult to automate. And voice-based customer support was a bit of a white, white space in across the world. So that is the reason, uh, in order to solve that pain, uh, Coinbase acquired uh, Agara. So the pain going after, and this maybe is a good trend to keep on. So before, I always say that for deep tech companies, before they achieve product market fit, they need to achieve pain technology fit. What is the key customer pain you are going after? is your technology, does your technology work? And third, is your technology the right solution to solve the problem? So as long as the pain technology fit is there, then comes product market fit for a deep tech company. So probably this is a good example of that.
1: From the investors uh, side of things, um, from your vantage point, what does the landscape look like when it comes to, you know, how you described it as um, scientific breakthrough inventions um, I mean, my rudimentary understanding, I've um, been looking into this last uh, you know, few months, especially because of a mini series on deep tech that I tried to pull together. Uh, but overall, my sense is that there are very, very few investors who might be willing to do this. And most uh, would like to see at least a close to commercialization prototype or something like that before they invest, even if they're investing at what they would define as early stage, what do you see the ecosystem, what does it look like to you when it comes to these breakthrough inventions?
0: Uh- Yeah, thanks for the question. I think uh, it could go in many ways, but it's a pretty deep question. But also therein lies our opportunity. As you rightly mentioned, I think Indian deep tech startup ecosystem is fairly nascent. There are all the right sort of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, things are brewing underneath, you can say, uh, for the takeoff, but the time is right now. So especially compared to even compared to 2018, when we started investing in India, things have actually come up uh, fairly, you know, accelerated in the last few months, uh, in the last few years, rather. So a couple of things that I'd like to say uh, regarding first, maybe regarding the funding landscape, and uh, then, like, what kind of companies are coming up in terms of that. So, it is true that the gestation periods are longer. Uh, but the way to think about deep tech companies is that what are the risks that investors are taking as you're investing so first there is the technology risk will this technology work second is the product risk even if the technology is good can we be productized into a commercially be commercially viable product so that's the product risk third is the capital risk which is very important so the key question that all deep tech or deep tech sort of investors in india and other emerging markets ask is if we write this investment check who will do the follow-on fundraising. So that's the third one. Fourth is a regulatory risk, which is pertinent to certain type of deep tech companies like drones and life sciences. And the last one is the market slash business execution risk, which are there for sort of everything. The interesting thing about deep tech companies is uh, identifying where these risks are and how to support the companies to de-risk them. We don't necessarily, none of the investors or VC investors take the pure technology risk itself. Maybe in life sciences, we tend to do a bit, but how to take that, how to take a slightly de-risk technology and convert it into a commercially be viable product. So that's where we come in. So we try to de-risk the product risk uh, as much as possible. And also because we have a large fund and by bringing in sometimes not just the other global corporate, global equity investors, uh, private equity investors rather, but also corporates to construct the round together. So de-risk the capital to an extent as well. And in the market, so often tends to be us is the large market can an indian company or a singaporean company directly expand to us perhaps they can but also can you get customers brand name customers just as you mentioned like a toyota like a denso etc in japan and use that reference ability japan as a second market before expanding to us so we try to de-risk each of it and that's the way i think uh, investors have been uh, uh, thinking in order to do that uh, in terms of the funding landscape even when we started investing, there were not even many deep tech seed funds, but now some have emerged, Special Invest, Five Ventures, several others, and slowly Bloom, Sequoia and others are also coming into the space in the seed stage itself, uh, becoming especially in things where technology is intersecting deep tech. So that layer is emerging, I think. UTech is still very active in doing the pre-series A, series A lead investment, which we see as a white space. But the challenge remains how to attract series B and growth stage capital into deep tech. I think that's clearly missing. So the seed problem is slowly being solved. The other thing we are passionate about is, uh, there is data to support it as well. The number of deep tech companies in India being spun off from universities like IIT Madras, IISC, IIT Bombay, IIT Delhi, and PITS as well. That's been increasing. So that's very heartening to see as a utech university focused fund. So that is something we are actively paying attention to as well.
1: On the growth side, have you come across any com- any genuine deep tech companies in India which are already at a stage where they need this series B, series of course series C probably not, but series B at least.
0: I think early winners are coming. So I'll give examples of a few of our portfolio and a few of non, some of our portfolio. So uh, first, for example, Tricog, when they required the growth funding, the growth funding for Tricog actually came from Omron and Sony, two Japanese corporations. Omron, uh, because they w- they see Omron is one of the largest healthcare companies, so it actually did not come from a large VC investor in US or Japan, it actually came from a corporate investor. So Omron wanted to collaborate with Tricog in India and other markets to build the business together. Sony from a similar perspective as well, that's one example. The second example is BugWorks. Where did BugWorks growth funding come from? Actually, we let the C, pre-series A, series A, and early series B rounds of BugWorks. Work. so until then it was difficult but once the the proverbial equivalent of revenue for a life sciences company is actually when you enter the human clinical trials, when you have the human data, right? Once BugWorks achieved that, they were able to get funding from LGT Group, which is a large, one of the world's largest private uh, financial institutions. So their impact arm called Lightrock. So some of the impact investors are now taking a look as well. So I think the non-traditional uh, for not just the VC investors, but some of the impact, organized, impact investors, some of the... Uh, corporates. So these are the non-traditional pool of capital that is slowly coming into Indian deep tech. Some of the non utech tech portfolios, such as gray-orange robotics, for example, I think Goldman Sachs and others came into their late stage uh, rounds. Uh, Pixel, for example, is doing well on the space tech uh, as well. So I think... Well, the early stage seems to struggle. Well, the S-curve, the moment the S-curve reaches, you know, the uh, passes the x-axis uh, zero level, uh, you get like non-traditional large investors looking at it. So uh, in a way, for early stage investors, this is very interesting because the valuation of a deep tech company may stay fairly low for some time. And then there is a, you know, drastic uh, exponential takeoff, which is very uh, helpful as well. So that's a sort of uh, amalgamation.
1: In, in India... Obviously, there's been a lot more interest and awareness in recent times about the importance of deep tech companies in the long term. I mean, contributes not only to GDP and so on, but also, I guess, the soft power of the nation um, internationally and so on. Um, What do you make of the the new uh, startups uh, policy, deep tech startups policy? What did you like about it? What are some areas where you think more work is needed?
0: Yeah, I think uh, actually when we uh, started investing in India in 2018, it was uh, if you had told me that in five years, India will actually have a dedicated startup deep tech policy, I wouldn't have believed. So that's absolutely amazing. I'd like to give an example of one of the brushes we had. Actually, when Prime Minister Modi came to Japan in 2019, I believe, uh, the managing partner of UTech named Mr. Goji and myself uh, and a couple of our team members, we proposed a a, a policy proposal to harmonize the clinical trial data. We thought, okay, we propose that for startups, and yeah, it's okay. And it'll sort of like maybe something, maybe there might be some article about it, but that's about it. But in six months, actually, it was enacted into a law. So we were super surprised that actually government is acting so fast. So in that way, we have had some very interesting experiences. But at the same time, when we invest, still taking the money out of India during exit is a a bit of a difficulty. Things are getting better, but there are those challenges as well. Regarding the national startup for deep tech policy, I think it's a very good, uh, proactive uh, uh, step in the right direction. Heartening to see a couple of things from our perspective. One there has been some emphasis placed on university spin offs and standardization of ip as you can see for most deep tech companies ip is the fundamental you know lifeline of the company right so how can we standardize the ip across the board is there a standard framework we can create to spin off the out license the technology into the startups coming from the universities so there is some Uh, clauses written about that. I think more clarity around that will be really good and implementation as well, that's one. Uh, Second, how can we enable exit paths for deep tech companies, right? Especially the science and technology companies going public in Indian stock exchange is still tough. So can we help them to potentially go public in other stock exchanges? For example, even Japan stock exchange is quite interesting, perhaps Singapore, perhaps US. So uh, there are some early sentences and early work regarding that, so that would be good. Third is, I think I've already allowed it, alluded to it, how to attract more international cap, uh, capital into Indian deep tech space. So that's, I think, an ongoing thing. There are some early, again, steps being taken by the policy regarding that. I think so probably from our perspective, it's heartening to see uh, some uh, you know work on all those three points that I mentioned just now.
1: If you throw the story forward five years from now, um, what are the sectors in Indian deep tech that um, you think are the most promising?
0: Yeah, I think uh, we're fairly optimistic uh, uh, about several of the sectors. One is, I think, digitization of legacy industries. That plays very well to Utech's own, I think, so one of your earlier questions was what are the sectors in which UTech has built good capabilities? Some of our big, biggest success cases have come from digitization of legacy industries such as aerospace, power electronics, robotics and manufacturing, that sort of thing as well. And often in those manufacturing markets, Japan tend to be either the first or the second largest accessible market, uh, leave China aside. Uh, So in that way, I think we see a lot of uh, potential in India plus Southeast Asia as well, in robotics and manufacturing, both India for India, as well as India for global. And we also see emergence of new business models uh, like robotics as a service, marketplaces, and that sort of thing. So digitization of legacy industries using technology, uh, a combination of hardware and software, that's a broader theme we are working on, so that's definitely there. On the other thing, fundamental science breakthroughs in life sciences physical sciences and material sciences uh, including space have slowly started to come out of india so that's very interesting and it is serving it's often addressing an unmet market need that is relevant to the 5 billion people of the world where japan wants to play an important role as well uh, A works is a good example a space company coming from india though we haven't done any space investment is a good example as well uh, you know they they're that is much more relevant to Middle East or even um, Southeast Asia, Latin America and Africa. So that sort of uh, are the digitization of legacy industries and the science breakthroughs that can impact 5 billion people. So these are some of the close things uh, we are looking at it. AI will form more of a foundational layer across the board. It's like electricity, right? It can go into many things. So AI is, you you know, you have that as a base uh, while we are looking at these sectors.
1: Where does climate change fall in the spectrum of investments that you look at
0: it's obvious that it's one of the largest uh, you know investment opportunities as well as one of the biggest evergreen problems to go after so that's very much there uh, rather than having our is rather than having a specific uh, climate focus sort of a thing looking at the ESG impact of the companies across the board that being said we are very interested in the mobility space as it pertains to because mobility is one of the biggest you know contributors to climate change in general so whether it's the optimization whether it's the electrification or movement uh, into like uh, decarbonization of that economy side so there we are seeing some very interesting especially on the electric vehicle side uh, we have done some investments as well as new sustainable materials actually so those are the two things uh, sustainability and uh, climate change as a whole they offer a very sort of a thing so probably uh, th- the intersection of the technology uh, with one of those fundamental life sciences or material sciences those are some of the things that are a better fit for somebody like you tech
1: hmm. and any interesting companies that you've come across in this sphere in india uh, yeah,
0: actually, uh, e-plane is one, though it's a slightly different one. But it is still uh, electric EV tall aircraft tackling the micromobility problem, uh, which is which which has a dual impact. It has impact on climate change, but it also has direct impact on the GDP and mobility of people as well as goods. So that's one example. Uh, we actually invested in another company where uh, it's not an Indian company; it's a US company. But the the co-founder happens to be an IIT Madras graduate. It's called Liminal. They do inspection systems to improve the yield and safety of electric vehicle batteries. So as you know, electric vehicle batteries, there are a lot of battery fires and so on and so forth, uh, which is a big issue. Electric vehicle batteries are closed. You can't use computer vision. So Liminal uses ultrasound plus AI in order to improve the yield and safety of EV batteries. So their clients are EV battery makers or automotive companies themselves. So those are some of the companies uh, we are sort of looking at. The other company we haven't invested, we are also interested in looking at those companies, uh, which you Uses foundation models, for example, in order to make new sustainable materials, in order to ensure, in order to come up with new chemicals, for example, sustainable chemicals using machine learning and data. So those are some of the companies uh, we are looking at in the space as well, where India has a lot of opportunity uh, based on the talent also based on the data and based on the burgeoning local b2b market as well
1: i, I want to ask you or switch to asking you more about your own personal journey um, from engineering graduate to vc investor but before that any specific points that you want to talk about in terms of the work at utech uh,
0: i think one thing that I like to say is uh, people often ask this question. So how has the recent macro downturn affected, uh, you know, our portfolio companies, uh, deep tech companies specifically, sort of. From our perspective, deep tech companies have always had it hard. So what we like to say is our entrepreneurs are battle-hardened. Even during the low interest rate era, it wasn't like very easy for a deep tech company. Uh, but now it's, again, sort of the same. Uh, so where we spent a lot of time on is linking What are the financial but also non-financial metrics? How can you link those non-financial metrics to value inflection points so that you can continue growing the company irrespective of the macro situation? So that is where we have spent a lot of time. So what I'd like to say is slowly the market change and all the things that has happened, whether it's a COVID, whether it's a supply chain resiliency, whether it's a wars, what has made not just the general, not just the investors, but also general public realize that while the last decade was more like software eating the world, uh, it's now time for deep tech, which is more like deep tech saving the world uh, and, you know, enabling the creation of a better future. So this is where there is more public as well as private, you know, interest in deep tech as a whole. Uh, so we, it's very, the, 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 whatever has happened in the macro sort of a thing, while it's difficult short term for everyone, I think it's uh, as a whole, a huge, uh, you know, tailwind for deep tech companies, uh, uh, as well as deep tech research going on in universities, etc.
1: Okay. Um, tell us a bit more about um, what you've done uh, yourself. You, you alluded to being an entrepreneur yourself, a couple of startups that didn't work out. Um, and I was listening to one of your earlier interviews um, where you spoke about uh, working on machine learning at ClearTrip. Yeah. So just kind of walk us through how you got from engineering to wanting to be a VC investor.
0: Uh, w- becoming a VC investor was more of a happenstance. Uh, but uh, uh, I think when I sit at like to be in Badravati, look at like the stars and see, hey, where will the opportunities come from? I have all these dreams, but what can I do with it? Uh, but that's where I think, uh, you know, the digitization of India, especially, but across the world, they have provided opportunities for many people like me, millions and millions of people uh, like me to follow their passion. Uh, so my part was, my like a tea-based approach, let me take random walks in order to explore different experiences. The moment I find my passion, let me immerse myself and, you know, go to the depth of the ocean with it. So that's the way I've been thinking about it. That is the reason uh, after my undergrad in, uh, though my undergrad in BMS was in uh, electronics my passion was more in on the programming side of things uh, as well as something touching the real world so i did one year machine learning in clear trip luckily after that uh, i was also when i was looking for potential i had this ambition of uh, you know pursuing uh, a master's abroad uh, all the time but when i was looking at options that's where it felt like where most of the people in india and other countries go to like west probably on the east there are a lot of opportunities so i looked at both china and japan uh, japan uh, gave me a scholarship uh, uh, thanks to University of Tokyo as well as Japanese government, constituted by the former Prime Minister Abe, actually. Incidentally, that was also the same year Prime Minister Modi became India's uh, Prime Minister. But anyway, that scholarship was very helpful. Japan was interesting to me, one, because it's a white space blue ocean strategy. I could be unique in Japan, but also because Japan is really good in software touching hardware and that sort of like real world sort of uh, impact or real world uh, creation of technology so i didn't want to necessarily apply machine learning just to digital world but also to touch the physical world sort of a thing so that got me into the uh, deep learning my work was on recurrent neural networks and other sort of things but most of the work ai has been growing so fast that most of my work is like sort of obsolete now which is quite interesting in its own right which tells me that the only way to you know um, be competent is learn as much as possible and continuous learning or continuous update of knowledge is very important it's moving at such a rapid space so while i was doing a university of while i was studying in university of tokyo i tried to start a student-funded company called kriya uh, but where that the biggest learning there was i want i was very passionate about impact uh, and i was passionate about technology as well i tried to merge both but i was probably focusing too much on the impact it ended up sort of becoming an NPO sort of a thing. So my learning was the best way to actually create impact is to build a business model around it. So that's where uh, it seemed very interesting. That's where the first time I learned about sort of venture capital and other things that it seemed like for each unique dollar, Looks like venture capital can actually create the maximum technology as well as business impact. You can invest in a seed stage at like one million, whatever it is, that could eventually end up creating a Google or a Themysc- or, sorry, or a Tencent and that sort of companies, or a Moderna, for that matter. So that was my fresh brush with venture capital. It so happened that when I was doing my masters in University of Tokyo in my lab, the founder of Utech, who was 45 at that point, wanted to do his part-time PhD in AI. He was a lawyer but he wanted to do a part-time PhD in AI, uh, and we met there. And when we were talking uh, and learned, learned more about UTech, my point and his point where we connected was, most people look at emerging markets as a large market, but they can also be huge technology centers. So can we do something on that? So that's the passion that we connected on, which ended up uh, me joining UTech in 2018 as the first uh, foreigner in UTEC, And it's been six years now, and yeah, that's that's sort of a quick journey. Or not so quick journey for that matter.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, because of the world war connection and, you know, American soldiers going back to the U.S. and, you know, Hollywood movies uh, romanticizing, you know, parts of Japanese culture, etc. That's one way people uh, look at it. I'm I'm just thinking going to Japan or to Tokyo from Bangalore, what was that experience like for you?
0: It it's interesting actually the one of the reasons i uh, there are several reasons why I went to japan but my fascination was not so much on the uh, on the romanticization of uh, that West often does to Japan actually when i was 2021 20, I started studying new models of entrepreneurship initially i studied the rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Ford's, but it was a bit of a ruthless capitalism you do capitalism for 60 whatever it is and then after you turn 60 70 you do philanthropy then i started searching for new models of capitalism uh, or new models of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, And I, of course, read the Tatas and the Billas and the others, uh, the founding fathers of India's uh, you know modern uh, democracy and modern economic uh, liberalization. But at the same time, I also come across a gentleman named Shibusawa Eichi, who is considered one of the founding fathers of Japan. So his model was cautious capitalism. You do capitalism as well as social good at the same time. So he created not one company. He created 500 companies, but he never was the CEO. He was a minority shareholder in all of that, starting from Mizuho Bank to Tokyo Stock Exchange to Tokyo Gas to JR Railways, most of these things. So Shibisawa H.E. created that model of Cautious capitalism or moral capitalism—that really, really resonated with me. And actually, incidentally, shivasawa also created the first India-Japan uh, 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 trade commission back in nineteen hundreds by collaborating with, I think, ji Tata at that point of time. Uh, so that that model of uh, you know entrepreneurship and capitalism resonated more with me, uh, and it's. The, my, one of my other beliefs is that like when your mind is pulled together in all different directions, you tend to learn a lot. India and Japan are so different uh, that... Uh, sorry, my computer went to sleep. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Uh, India and Japan are so different that the diversity of that experiences, I think, has made me a richer and a better person in many ways. Uh, so that's the fascination uh, with which I landed up in Japan and that continues uh, till date.
1: What got you... Th- uh, thinking about learning more about entrepreneurs that sent you down this kind of rabbit hole looking at American entrepreneurs and capitalism and 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 how did you do it? Did you read a lot of books? Uh, or I guess by the time you were in college, internet was already picking up in India. So I'm just curious about how, and this is something that's very close to my heart in the sense that as a journalist, w- one of the biggest things that I struggle with is often a lack of enough sense of history. Uh, so yeah, I'm just really uh, curious about how you taught yourself all of these things.
0: The sort of interest came from like, what can I, I, let's uh, like, okay, I have all this energy, I have one life, I have a lot of, uh, you know, I, there are many ways in which I can focus my energy, let me try to focus my energy on something where others have not done. And that led to what is the best way is like, well, entrepreneurs are the ones who actually create something. The act of creating something out of nothing is very beautiful. Uh, that's what it seemed like in, in general. There were two parts. One is scientists do that, entrepreneurs do that. Uh, so those were the sort of two things. I never, I personally was sort of a person where I'm interested in many, many things. And I am, I have this sort of portfolio approach where I love it when I have to shift my mind from a, a life sciences company to a commodities hedging company, to an AI company, to EV tall company. So that sort of thing really fascinated me. So it seemed like, okay, more than the scientists, let's see the entrepreneur. That's how I sort of like it. And at the same time, uh, actually, like many people, when I was like 15 or 14, my dad, showed me a video of Narayan Murthy starting like Infosys that sort of a thing at the same time I was trying to order books and Flipkart used to deliver me at the what are these it's not any of the companies that I've heard it's not Tata it's actually Flipkart who is doing that sort of a thing so those sort of things started uh, my fascination with entrepreneurs and as I grow uh, I learned that actually I can add more value to the ecosystem uh, not just by starting companies, but actually by partnering with researchers and others. So that's where the deep tech ecosystem really works. I mentioned the scientists, I mentioned the entrepreneurs. Helping scientists to become entrepreneurs seems like the best of both. So that's where I think I found passion in deep tech, if I have to tie back to this.
1: Since you mentioned your dad, uh, what was it like growing up? What was your earliest memory uh, of looking back, uh, experiences that have that might have consciously or otherwise influenced your career decisions?
0: I, I think both my parents, my mom and dad, of course, have had a very uh, deep impact uh, on... I, I'm a single child. They've had a deep impact on me. I think they instilled in me that the only there's no substitute to hard work. I think that that principle or that tenet is what I follow till day. And Japan itself is actually an embodiment of that. There's, I don't think anyone works as hard as Japan in many ways. So I think that tenet was very helpful. Uh, so that sort of a thing. And second is uh, uh, when you get an opportunity, you sort of take it, grab it with both hands. Don't sit around waiting for anything to come across. I think those are the two, three things that, two things that were very helpful as such. Uh, and both of them were very interesting. I consider my dad was very intellectually curious, always wanting to learn more. So I think I got very inspired by it. Even now probably he reads so much and he learns more about even things like venture capital that he asked me questions which flummoxes me. But at the same time, I also learned how my mom as a homemaker uh, was able to use her street partners to you know lead a happy and a successful life in her own way so i think i tried to imbibe both the intellectual curiosity and that street smart street smart things required to you know do well in life those were some of the two things that i kind of imbibed i think from my parents uh, and they gave me and the other sort of thing is they gave me the freedom to do whatever it is that i wanted to do and they always kind of were thinking okay in the long term is this gonna really help i think somewhere they imbibed in me that sort of like long-term philosophy again it matters more to and it ties back to japan as well japan is very long term so that's i think those were some of the things where which uh, uh, helped me to become who i am today and hopefully they'll continue to stay with me for the rest of my life
1: what did your father do by way of work when he's in school
0: it's interesting. A lot of things in my, uh, uh, for me is like, my name is Kiran Mysore. My native place was Mysore. He used to work in Mysore Paper Mills. Uh, um, and my grandfather also used to work in Mysore Paper Mills, which unfortunately no longer exists. Uh, that was in Padravati. Uh, and by the way, that's another point. If industries don't use technology to modernize what might happen to the themselves as well as the place at large is a good example what's happening with the steel mill in in the US or uh, these sort of things in India as well so I'm also very cautiously aware of the impact of technology both the positive and the negative impact on how it has on the economy as such Uh, so uh, that's what my father did
1: okay I mean I get that you're 31 years old but in the 10 years of your work you've packed in so much uh, so I was thinking that I will still ask you uh, what might have been, uh, you know, a really low point, and to contrast that, what's been a really big high, and, and what did you learn from them?
0: I enjoy the highs and lows. I'm I'm 32 now, actually. I enjoy the highs and lows. But one of the difficult parts of in general, I think it's often less talked about in venture capital in general, is the feedback cycles are so long. Actually, the companies that you invest don't do well fail early. The ones who do well take 10 years. So how to have that equanimity, that level-headed sort of things with the long-term, it's easier to say, but very harder to kind of like do it. That's that's there. And second, I think it's also quite difficult when you are a venture capitalist, I'm especially talking about my professional career and six, seven years of my 10 years of career, I have been a venture capitalist. There are entrepreneurs that we serve. There is, we have our own team, but we also have limited partners who give us money. How do we, should I be entrepreneurs first? Should I be my team first? Should I be LPs first? Who do we service? We are in a service business. Who do I serve? That's always a difficult sort of a question that I wrestle with. What I've come across is uh, like, well, being company first is very important at the end of the day. Keep the company in the mind, not any one individual stakeholder. So those were figuring out, some of those were in a way it was a low but also i think that sort of is a high high i, I don't necessarily think there is a, it's like more like a wave i think uh, so the 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 only thing i think if if anything you say high is after this podcast is released my parents will listen to it every single thing even if they don't understand like they was they they make sure they listen to it i think them listening to it and being happy i think that's that makes me happier than anything uh, i can think
1: of Okay, <laughs> you kinda of, kind of set the bar high for me. fair enough. Um, okay when when you you know when young people mm, think in terms of uh, careers, uh, what advice would you have in terms of what has worked for you, uh, you know, whether sort of specific, conscious, deliberate uh, processes or intuitively things that you've done looking back that worked for you uh, when one thinks about finding a path that, is fulfilling.
0: Uh, I think one of the, the w- w- one thing I- I've thought a bit about it and one thing that sort of like has helped me in general is putting myself in uncomfortable situations. Uh, I felt I was always fairly an introvert and VC is probably one of the most extroverted jobs there. Uh, And that forces you. So even towards the end of the year, I try to tally what I've done. If I feel like I haven't put myself in enough uncomfortable circumstances, if I haven't taken enough risks or if I haven't failed, if I have failed less, that means actually it may be that I haven't taken enough risks. So I think putting myself in uncomfortable situations is perhaps the only way to learn. So that's one thing I think that has, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, helped me a lot. And that's something I'd like to carry. And now as I'm sort of becoming 30 and elsewhere, so I think investing in relationships uh, and experiences. So people ask like, hey, are you rich? I think rich with uh, people and rich with experience. So that probably I'll trade that for millions of dollars of cash at any time. So I think investing in relationships and, you know, uh, and, and, you know rich experiences that is another sort of thing that i'm learning as we go as well uh, and the last one is actually uh, uh, i don't want to tell the person's name when i asked several people uh, him and a couple of others as well uh, when they are old uh, what is there anything you regret sort of a thing one common thread that comes across is people don't regret the things they've tried and failed that they've actually regret the things that they have not tried at all Maybe if I did that, it could happen. So I think that is something that I would never... So which means to say that failure is an option, but probably regret is not. So when I'm like, I don't know, double this age, so I would like to ensure that regret is not there. Failure is fine. That's, that's my principle.
1: Okay, very nice. And the other question that I always want to learn from is, um, anytime I get a chance to speak with someone who's been really successful, I get curious about what, is, what are some of their daily productivity hacks? because we live in a world where you know we have obscene levels of notifications on our phones and distractions and so on so how do you stay on track on a daily basis
0: i think it's it's difficult and in, in fact in you know, a vc world like you have to be active all the time sort of a thing and all that and the probably the only or one or two daily hacks or hacks in general i have is the only way to be really good at what you do uh, is to find is to do something that you would do anyway even if nobody paid you any money So work seems like play sort of a thing. That's the only way. Otherwise, I think it's impossible to be in generally as good at anything. And that passion could be anything. It could be work. It could be something else. So that's the only way when work seems like play. That's the only way. Or if actually it's a play, then you build a business model around it and make it work. Uh, So that's one. Second is uh, one thing that has really helped is even to this day, I try as much as possible before I sleep to see did I learn anything new today? And try to make a note of it. Sometimes it's a mental note, sometimes it's I actually write it down somewhere on an app. Uh, but I think, have, you, have I learned something new? That sort of thing compounds over time. So that's the only two ways I have, uh, or the only two points I have. I don't know if it's a daily hack, it's more of a, what seems like a daily hack, maybe it's more like spread out over time. But those are the two things I try to do as much as possible.
1: Okay, Uh, Kiran, really insightful and very enjoyable conversation. Uh, Thank you for very generously making time for me and definitely hope to keep the conversation going.
0: Thank you for doing this. Thanks for all your contribution to the ecosystem.
1: That's it for this conversation. I'll be back soon with another episode of Startup Fridays. Until then, have a great Friday and a wonderful weekend. I'm Hari Arakli. Thank you for listening.